0: Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This one features Lisa Nandy, Labour leadership candidate. And we talk about not just why Labour lost, how Labour can win again, if it can win again, um, and also some stuff about her opponents, but also about her philosophy on life. What's her view of the world and where Labour needs to be within it? What is Nandyism if it exists? And all things like that. So it, maybe it's the sort of conversation, actually, I, uh, you don't often hear... I don't think leadership candidates or or many politicians being asked, what is their guiding philosophy? What is their actual view of the world? Um, So it was fascinating and it was brilliant. Uh, So do enjoy it. Um, I'm off on tour. Uh, As you may know, thanks to everyone who came to Soho. It was absolutely uh, uh, just a pleasure. Uh, So thanks to everyone who came. Um, The next stop on the 20th of February is the Crewe Lyceum Theatre. Uh, the next up after that is uh, the 21st of February In Leicester at the Sioux Townsend Theatre Which is a beautiful place which I played last year uh, Then in March, on the 5th I'm in Darlington at the Hullabaloo On the 6th I'm in Hexham at the Queen's Hall The 7th, Bedford, the Quarry uh, On the 10th I'm back at the London South Bank. On the 14th, Maidenhead The Northern Farm Theatre which I love uh, at The 18th, the first time I've played Leeds in a few years At the Hyde Park Book Club uh, on the 19th, York at the Crescent, uh, on the 20th, Annick at the Playhouse, the 22nd, South End, the Dixon Studio, the 23rd, uh, Cambridge Junction, which is always a treat, um, back at the South Bank on the 27th of March, uh, Brighton Comedia on the 29th of March, there's loads more after that in April and May, including Cardiff, Newcastle, Sheffield... Glasgow, Edinburgh, Nottingham, uh, all manner of wonderful places. Tickets for all those shows are available through my website, mapforcom slash live. Some of them are close to selling out already, so if you're thinking of coming, buy a ticket as soon as you can, and um, I'll see you out there. But now, I shall leave you in the hands of Lisa Andy. Hello, everyone, and good evening. Thank you very much for coming. It's uh, obviously the first time we've all been back together since uh, Labour won the argument. LAUGHTER the fourth time they've won an argument since 2010. A remarkable record of winning the argument. Uh, give me a cheer if this is, uh, if you're a regular here. What about regulars? Give me a cheer if this is your first time. Hooray! Oh, welcome Newcomers. Fantastic. i you for a very special night, of course, with a very special guest. But we have to deal with the facts first that uh, Boris Johnson has now got a, a, a huge majority. He uh, was able to uh, win Labour seats all over the place, including in Wales. And uh, where he I uh, 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 we, we got a, we got an oven ready deal, uh we gave to, uh, uh, pop it to you. I poppy in the poppinny pop-tiping. Uh, he said that I ran in Wales and you could see Welsh hearts melting. Generations of steel workers. No, I never vote Tory me, no 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 my dad was a steel worker, my granddad is it. you cut me I bleed labor, there's no way I'm for- what's that? He's just calling it a pop tea ping. Fuck it, I
1: vote Tory. <laughs> the That
0: so works in Wales. Uh and it, 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 it was fascinating watching him show that electric campaign since for a shot, you know, we, 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 it brings it done. i uh, we going to unleash it you again? Know, this sort of new ooh, uh, sort of, uh, I was gonna call it a double fist thing, but that would uh, <laughs> make suggestions about his private life. I'm not entirely sure about, it, but you know, we're gonna bring it down. You know, I I yeah, uh, we are uh, we're gonna we're going to do I uh, you are by the way. I, 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 yeah, You know <laughs> you're know, sort of halfway through also a pilot, sort of wake up in the middle of his own argument I I I I I you know, I I I I I I I I think the you, you know, the quest, I I you know, I think I I I I do I I we are we are we we can do uh we unleash the, the potential of this waterfall uh, I, I, We we get pretty dumb. Uh carry on. Uh W T A um that sort of uh, uh, thing Sort of runs out of steam in the end, but uh, we'll see if he does. But uh, of course, he's now won an eighty-seat majority. Uh, one of the big concerns when he voted Labour or Tory or whatever uh, was people's uh, concern, perhaps, that the Tories are going to sell off the NHS. Uh, and he's got this line, Boris, that it was in the manifesto and that he's saying around the place says, "He uh, says the NHS is not on the table in a UK-US trade deal." I think that was uh, fine. You couldn't be more clear than that. And then he started going, "The drugs." The NHS provides, or not on the table. The services the NHS delivers, or not on the table. But he only ever uses those two examples. Now, in just giving two examples of how the NHS is not on the table, if anything, it's made me more suspicious. If he just said, the NHS is on the table, full stop, I'd be mean, like, right, that's a clear answer. It'd be I mean, like saying, right, I definitely haven't murdered anyone. Put it this way, I haven't murdered them in the garden or the bath. <laughs> Uh, so specific, you may be even more, um, you may be even more uh, worried. Of course, uh, we're going to leave the European Union technically on, on Friday. Are people going to celebrate?
1: No. Yeah. No. I mean, I wasn't,
0: wasn't suggesting you should. No. Sort of night of eye contact. I mean, some people want to celebrate. That's fine. Uh, some people want to do bunger buck free, big bing, uh, Did anyone give any money to the crowd funder? It's about a quarter of a million quid. Mark Francois of course, has been desperate to hear a clock chime at midnight, because that's what it's all about. If sort of getting up in Parliament going, we've got to have this... I mean, I genuinely think, at midnight, if they haven't raised the money, he will be up there himself, just fucking... <laughs> ringing it with his tiny little dick, because... We can tell it's small from his behaviour. Um, one of the big stories this week, actually, election aside is that, they're considering moving the House of Lords to York, which you know, say i will getting closer to the people. Well, closer to the people of York, obviously less close to people of London. You know, but people are all over the place, so be careful. But, uh, surely it's impractical having one house down here and one. I mean, quite apart from anything, it's a heck of a walk for Black Rod. <laughs> Fucking 200 miles just to get a door slammed in his face. felt the awkward walk for the Commons to the Lords was bad last year with Corbyn and Boris barely speaking. Imagine that on what, according to Google Maps, is a 65-hour walk. (laughs) Fucking stupid idea. Um, The Lib Dems, of course, you know, before the last time we met, the Lib Dems had a bit of hope. Uh, That has sort of gone, (laughs) along with most of the Lib Dems. Uh, It it was such an awful night. I mean, I did wonder when that election got called, uh, just in terms of the result, I did wonder whether the reason they got squeezed was just that. Given the parliamentary arithmetic at the time, given that potentially Brexit could have been stopped in that election and that Corbyn was the most likely to form a government out of uh, Labour the Lib Dems, that just whatever their position would have been on Article 50, they would have just got squeezed anyway. Or whether saying they would revoke Article 50 really fucked them up. And I can't make, my, I, I can't make up my mind whether for a while they were just the, the adults in the room saying, look, we're the only ones who are sane anymore. Labour's gone batshit, the Tories gone batshit. we're just going to play a steady shit and people are just going to come to us because for once, we seem quite normal. And they by saying revoke Article 50, I think they've just pissed off a lot of people who were A, Liberal and B, Democrats. And that, that was, that's always been their target market as far as I'm aware. Such an extreme position for like basically a wet party to take. I can't still I'm not process it how severe it was. But, like walking into the great scone debate we have in the UK about whether you put jam on first or clotted cream on first, or whether you put clotted cream on first and then jam, and going, Fuck the scone, I want the jam in my mouth the cream up my arsehole. And by the way, I pronounce it SCOON. <laughs> you pissed everyone off. You're not even pronouncing it right. Um, Labour are going to have a review into their defeat, uh, led- of course by Ed Miliband. Uh, look, no, 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 look, I know a lot about losing elections. I'm an expert in the field. Uh, and I want to pay, no, I do.
1: <laughs> I
0: want to pay tribute uh, to Jeremy who, look, I'll give him credit, knows how to lose even better than I do. <laughs> an excuse to dust that off, to be honest. I'm not even sure, I'm not even sure he's uh, exactly wrong. Labour were obliterated, not just in the north, uh, in Scotland, England, in Wales, where they were hoping to sort of repel the Tories a bit in Wales. The leader replied, you might have seen during the election, Adam Price, said uh, that uh, one of the, the prominent MPs, he said, uh, the Welsh have been treated like slaves by the English. We have been colonised by Westminster. Now he had to apologise for that, because obviously they've not been treated like slaves and belittles the experience of people whose forefathers and ancestors were treated like slaves to suggest that the Welsh have any sort of uh, understanding based on their experience. But you can see why he said it, you know. We've all been enjoying that spate of Hollywood Welsh slave films. Uh, Big hits like 12 Years a Slave and my personal favourite, Daffid Unchained it's kind of out there in the ether, you know. Um, the north of England is where the Tories did well thanks to a guy called Workington Man. Uh, this was the uh, profile of voter that apparently the Tories needed to win over in order to get a big majority. We've had Worcester Woman before, Mondeo Man. And uh, Workington Man apparently was a white, single man who lived in the north of England, voted leave and liked rugby league. Um, a bit of a prick. Uh, <laughs> And it's only that final thing that's the kicker for me. I can accommodate everything else, but rugby league, yeah, come on mate. Whoa. There's football out there, for crying out loud. But uh, obviously from those simple data points, we can extrapolate other information about him. He thinks that Monster is an acceptable energy drink. Uh,
1: <laughs> he
0: still wears super dry clothing and has been on a stag do where at least one person has died.
1: <laughs>
0: I mean, I have to say my favorite, just on reflection of the Labour manifesto, my favorite policy of them all is the free broadband one because all the nationalisation stuff? You like they were always going to do that. It's classic Corbyn 1970s Labour stuff. Free broadband. There was no like political campaign for it. Like on the left, there have always been people, ca- unions, campaigning to nationalise rail, for electricity, and mail for years as long as I've been alive. Free. There was no one on the streets. Not there in the leader of the opposition's office peering through the blinds, going, "The broadband lot are outside again, Jeremy." <laughs> I'm gonna have to fucking give him some of mate. Honestly, it's getting fucking hot out there. Absolutely stupid. He uh, released his New Year video the other week, Jeremy Corbyn. I don't know if you've seen it. His opening line, he said, 2019 was quite the year for the Labour Party. I mean, what that is, it doesn't then go on to say why. Like, that's quite a jaunty way to tell them they've basically been on the verge of extinction. Look like Harold Shipman going, 1999 was quite the year for your local GP. <laughs> well, they're not quite similar actually in the two, <laughs> um, He said, uh, Boris, uh, uh, Gilman in this video says, We are the resistance to Boris Johnson. Now, given that you've just been minced by Boris Johnson, sort of similar level of resistance that a rabbit would be to a combine harvester. <laughs> No, the rabbit the rabbit lobby are in tonight well <laughs> take these truth bombs uh, he also he uses this phrase as well but so what, it's almost partridge it's, they're scared of us, because we're not backed by the billionaires or the millionaires who work for the billionaires. Uh, yeah, I know who millionaires are. You don't have to explain what a millionaire is. We're not backed by the millionaire, by the billionaires, we're not even backed by the trillionaires who fund the billionaires, who employ the millionaires, who work for the billionaires to keep the trillionaires' trillionaires. We're not even employed by the people employed by the millionaires, who feed their money to the billionaires, upwards to the trillionaires, who feed it back to the billionaires to the millionaires. We're not supported by, we're not supported by people anyways. So that's part of the problem. <laughs> Just incredible, he wants to do a tour, he wants to do a farewell tour. Corbin, and the first stop on his tour, Baghdad. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> just want to visit a city that kind of chimes with my values. You yeah, know, well, there are none in the UK or Europe, so uh, I hope he goes to the front line. Get out there, Jera. Jezza, with a fucking tin hat on. He, uh, he said he wants this tour to focus on stopping war, that's why he wants to go to Baghdad. Fucking go to Syria then, get involved, mate. If you're that odd. I mean, it must. What's he going to say when he turns up at Baghdad? 2003 was quite the year for Baghdad. He wants to, in this country, set up a foundation that will provide education for working class people about socialism. Um, we already have it. It's called Life. And I don't think working class people have learnt the lesson pretty clearly, to be honest. But. Uh, He also said he wants to promote an agenda of um, socialist... I can't read my fucking... Oh, that's it. He said he wants to promote an agenda of socialist struggles. Um, I don't know why he wants to promote struggles, but socialist struggles sounds like a kind of jaunty socialist sitcom. (laughs)
1: Hey,
0: you left my... Hey, who's got my copy of Communist Manifesto? Well, you will leave stuff lying around. Join you next week on Socialist Struggles.
1: Um,
0: the NEC report, by the way, that was uh, circulated on social media today, said that um, even though Labour lost the election, Jeremy Corbyn got more likes and retweets on election day than Boris Johnson. This is in the official NEC report. That's like, that does not. Co- I can't imagine Churchill in 1951 ashen at being thrown out, in 1945 rather. Action being thrown out of office, having won the Second World War. When it's broken to him, Winston, I'm very sorry, you've, you've defeated the Nazis, but you have just lost the Labour Party. I can't imagine he would have said, well, do, Has anyone added me on Snapchat? Because <laughs> that would soften the blow. I've nothing to offer but likes, retweets, shares, <laughs> and DMs. <laughs> it's fascinating watching Labour go through all this. That Virgin is the one to watch. That manifesto was popular, we won the Battle of Ideas. We did, we won the Battle of ideas. we had a popular manifesto. Now it's true that when you poll people on individual Labour policies, some of them are popular, like nationalising the rail. On, just on that, around 67% of the public. I would still say, once the reality of it was perhaps going to happen, people's opinion might change. But nevertheless, a majority of British people do want to see the railways nationalised. But when you say we're going to nationalise rail, and mail, and water, and electricity, and broadband, that then gets less credible, and also the people doing the nationalising are crucial to the. Art. This is the problem where people like Burgeon aren't getting. Go well, they were popular ideas. What was the problem? You're like, well, you're the problem then because maybe it's the person who said it. Like, For instance, is that like saying, would you like a hand job? Yes, please. Would you like Jeremy Corbyn to do it? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> no, no. no. That is the crucial problem. Right? <laughs> It's on the basis that the person doing it is someone you would like to do it, not... Those withered old knuckles. Some of you are into that, each of their own. Oh, man. Um, But, um, ladies and gentlemen, this is already uh, a a phenomenal night. You're already a wonderful crowd. The first one back in 2020. And we have a a fantastic guest in the second half, and one of the Labour leadership candidates, Lisa Nandy! It's very exciting. So, uh, Happy New Year, thank you for coming down, charge your glasses look to the loo. I'll be back in 20 minutes. For now, I've been Matt Fogg. Thank you very much. See you in a bit. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, well, we have a very special guest right in the middle of this Labour contest. Someone I've wanted to interview for a very long time. <laughs> and it's true, as it is every month. Uh, <laughs> Lisa Nandy has been uh, an MP for almost 10 years, the MP for Wigan, uh, and has been a rising star throughout that time. Someone who's been touted for the Labour leadership at various points, but now is standing for the Labour leadership. And I think it's fair to say, in this contest, has so far been the surprise package, and the Andrew Neil interview in particular, was a kind of Michael Owen moment, where this (laughs) young star sets alight a tournament. So I think it's really exciting to see someone who, people have been talking about Kirsten, but more as the days and weeks go by people increasingly talk about lisa nandy as someone that not just could win this contest but someone that they would like to see win it so it's a real treat to talk to lisa tonight in the middle of this labor leadership contest please give a huge political party welcome to lisa nandy (laughs) Lisa, welcome to the show thanks for coming some guests choose to drink at this event some we don't Um, got a, uh, a pint of lager
2: Have. so a little while ago I went to a microbrewery and had a pint of real ale and I got a text from a woman who runs a microbrewery in Wigan to tell me that she knows full well that I drink lager and to stop being so inauthentic. <laughs> so uh, this is the first chance I've had to have a drink for a while and I am really enjoying it, so you're not right. taking it away. Well,
0: let's get on it. Get some shots in. <laughs> let's do truth or dare. What can possibly go wrong? Um, so, and um, what is it? A, a, uh, what's your favourite I don't. I
2: don't know what it is, actually. Your producer just bought it for me. Thank you very much. And is
0: it, nice? is it a bit on the crafty side or is it...? It's just lager,
2: isn't it? Lager's lager.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> not,
0: for, no? not if you talk to people with beards, oh, I find.
2: <laughs> I don't
0: mean Jeremy. I think he was teetotal anyway, wasn't
2: he? I don't know. He's got a bottle of tequila in his office,
0: <laughs> and a revolver. <laughs> Heck of a way to go. Um, <laughs> Well, as he would say, it's quite the year. But, um, <laughs> <coughs> so, first things first. This—I'm uh, sure you've seen parts of the NEC report.
2: I'm regretting this already.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but do you do you think that um, the fact that Jeremy went viral on election day uh, is a kind of comfort
2: for, for losing the election? Um, I mean, no. And I I haven't read the NEC report, so somebody handed it to me this afternoon, but I haven't actually looked at it. Um, So my only knowledge of this report is based on what you said 20 minutes ago, (laughs) which is a slightly poor basis on which to judge it. But um, I suppose what I would say is that I think there has been a bit of a problem for the left in the recent years, because we, when I first became an MP 10 years ago, we didn't have, Twitter. Facebook was a thing, but Twitter wasn't really much of a thing. And a lot of my constituents were on Facebook, not all of them, but a lot of them, but very few on Twitter. And it's the sort of medium for political obsessives to talk to each other. And we make the mistake of thinking that that is the real world. And for successive elections now, we've been talking to ourselves about issues that we think are important. And when I go home to Wigan and knock on doors, none of these issues actually come up on the doorstep and nobody has the faintest clue what you're talking about. And um, I I I took social media off my phone for the purposes of this campaign because part of what I want to do with the campaign is talk not just to members but to the country as well. Because I think in places like Wigan, people really, really need to hear from Labour leadership contenders that we understand what has just happened and the shattering nature of what's just happened and we have a level of humility about how angry people are with us. And if I spent all my time on Twitter I'm not sure I would understand that at all. And so I've taken it on my phone and you know, still tweeting, still putting stuff out but actually we've got to start understanding that the country is somewhere else and if we want to reconnect with them then we go to them not the other way around.
0: And do you agree with the sort of Richard Bergen analysis? Uh, if, if we can you know, him? I
2: think you're saying his name wrong.
0: Is it Bergen? I
2: think it's Bergen, yeah. And so I knew, his, I knew his uncle, Colin, and Colin definitely is Colin, Colin Bergen, Look, so...
0: I, I did not get his name wrong. I, it, it, it was a communication issue. I, I, I got the name right, but I did not communicate in the way... I, I do not think we need to change.
2: But I'm fairly sure... He would, <laughs> But all you're taking the piss out of Richard, I'm fairly sure that he would get your name right. So he's laughing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's the only thing he can get right. Just get people's names right, and he can write joined up now. He's really... He's coming on. He's coming on. I
2: don't think you're coming at this from a position of strength, <laughs> <laughs> He's got so his name wrong.
0: Richard Bergen. Yeah. Do you agree with the Bergen analysis? Um, that Actually, all the policies were fine. It was just Brexit, and maybe it was a communication issue on top of that.
2: So I think it was... Um I think the sheer amount of policies was a problem. I mean, I don't really know anyone who read the manifesto, to be honest. Did you? All yeah. of it? Yeah, but yeah. Test- I'll do page. a Michael Gove on you now and start testing you page by page to see what you can remember. Invest
0: in walking. <laughs> uh, End international- the discre- discrepancy in international seafarers' pay. <laughs> Ban the sale of primates as pets. I mean, I've read that manifesto. <laughs> so, I think
2: that the sheer amount of of in it was a problem. I, don't, I haven't got a clue what I'm talking about. I agree. This may be part of the problem. But, um, I mean, you know, to quote a well-known phrase, Labour needs to rediscover the language of priorities and there's a reason for this which is on election day in 2017 I got a phone call in my campaign office from a woman who uh, people often assume if if anyone picks up the phone in the campaign office or even in my constituency office and they're a woman, they assume it's me. Mm-hmm. And one of my staff, I, most of my staff are from Wigan or live in Wigan, but what uh, a few years ago I hired someone from London to work in my London office and he said to me... Nobody ever says hello in Wigan, do they, when they ring up? They always start with, Worried is, love. <laughs> and, um, and I love it, because people are straight to the point. And she rang up and she said, is that Lisa? I said, yeah. And she said, right, Warren is, love. <laughs> and um, she said to me, don't promise what you can't deliver. And I said to her, well, I agree with that, to be honest with you. And she said, well, because the thing is, love, it's our money, and we haven't got a lot of it. And she's right, actually, because that is... You know, All of those commitments that we made in that manifesto, rather than exciting people about the future that we could build and the way that we could repair the social fabric in this country, which is falling apart after 10 years of Tory government, it actually made people feel frightened. And it's because people don't have a lot of savings, they don't have a lot of resilience, they want to know that their kids are going to be protected. And that was how we ended up in a situation where the WASPy women, the women who have been really badly and unfairly affected by the changes to state pension age, who were desperate to see some concrete pledges from Labour in the manifesto. I had someone saying to me, who was a waspy woman herself, this is too much, because she was worried about her kids and she was worried that we couldn't afford it. And I think we do have to rediscover the language of priorities, but there's also a big trust issue at the election, and there's no getting away from that. We had that in 2015, we had it in 2017, and we had it in 2019 with spades and until we can convince people that they can trust us to wield power and make decisions on their behalf, we're not going to get back into government. Uh,
0: And what are the key reasons, do you think, why people don't trust Labour?
2: Well, I think there's a a long-standing sense that we're not for them anymore and that we don't get it. And that has been building in places like Wigan for about 40 years. So, you know, I heard you taking the mickey out of us all earlier. About how long-standing some of these issues are, but they are—they are long-standing. We lost good jobs. Um, I mean, nobody—you know—you come to Wigan, you go to Barnsley, nobody wants to reopen the coal mines. They don't want that future for their kids or their grandchildren. But when we lost the mines, we lost a sense of purpose as well. We lost our place in the world. We didn't just lose good jobs, spending power, young people, working-age population. We lost—we lost the story of who we are. And when you replace. The coal mines in Barnsley with ASOS where young people can go and pack boxes for the minimum wage and that's the best that you can offer for the future it's not good enough and people want to see better than that and they don't want their kids to have to choose between love and home and family and the future and opportunity and so you've got lots of older people now in those towns growing old hundreds of miles away from their children and their grandchildren with the spending power having been stripped out of the community so the high streets have fallen to pieces, and the bus networks have been cancelled. It was only a matter of time before I mentioned buses. But this is a real burning thing back home, and the pubs are closing, and people just feel like the world is falling apart, and nobody's interested. And no, at, at best, we just ignore it, and at worst, we're deeply disrespectful about it. And they feel that as much about Labour as they do about the Tories, and in many of those red w- wall seats, they feel it more about us, because they expect more of us. And they won't expect more of us for very long. We've got a really small window where we can earn that trust back. But we've got to show that we get it. And we've also got to show that we have as much riding on this as they do. And that's why it's always been really important to me. I live in Wigan. That's, it's my home. It's where my family is. And so I have skin in the game. And I think for my constituents, that is really important, that they can see that, that I care. And if the hospitals fall into pieces, that's my family that's sitting in A&E and it really matters, and we've got to go out and show people that we are that again.
0: As you say, these people are voting Conservatives, so what is it that makes them trust the Conservatives, despite this decline as you see it, and not the Labour Party, when the Tories have been in in charge for so much longer?
2: Well, I don't want to speak for everybody, because I've heard all sorts of different things in the election, but I never really felt anywhere that I campaigned that there was much enthusiasm for the Tories or any affection for Boris Johnson. It felt much more to me that this was all about Labour, and we were out a few days after the election, before I decided to do this, I went to Ashfield with my friend Gloria, who was the MP there until recently, and Natalie, who's our brilliant candidate. And um, we, just, we took a TV crew, we took ITV, but we went and just banged on doors and just got people to sh- shout at us, really. I mean, that's basically what they did. <laughs> and that was partly important to me because I wanted them to have the voice. I wanted them to tell the story of what had happened in the election campaign. But it was also so that I could see whether... Actually, they thought that I was part of the solution or, or not, because I wouldn't have stood if, if that's what I'd felt. And um, I met an ex-minor who just said to me, I said to him, what do I have to do? To, like, How could you have done this? How could you have voted Tory after everything they've done to this community in Sutton in Ashfield twice? And he said, because of you lot. It was all about us. And he wanted us to wake up and get it, and he couldn't see another way of making us do that. And he said he'd never vote for them again. He said, I probably won't vote again in my lifetime, but I just wanted you to know. And when I said to him, I am going to make it my mission to win you back. This is my life's mission now. we have been talking for about 10, 15 minutes, and his face just broke into a smile for the first time. There are a lot of people looking to Labour right now who want to know that we've got it, and that we've changed, and that we've understood it. And that's why... You know, some of the things I've done in this leadership contest might have surprised people a bit. I've spent far more time with the public than I have with Labour Party members. You know, obviously done a bit of both. But wherever I go in the country, I start with the public and I move to the members. And that is because they have to... While they're watching, while they're seeing this process, this really important process that Labour is going through, after our worst election defeat since 1935, they need to see the next Labour leader standing up and saying these things and acknowledging what's just happened. And I've watched too many leadership candidates go through this process in the last 10 years. You said at the beginning we've had a lot of contests. We certainly have. And I've watched too many people go through it, trying to run the campaign that they think will work for the membership, and then come out the other side having already lost the country. And I'm determined that we're not going to do that this time.
0: So, to win back the, the, the people you described, as well, yeah. Ashfield, Mansfield, <laughs> uh, Sedgefield, uh, and all the Bolsover and all these places, that would previously it would be unthinkable that these places would vote Conservative. That's what's happened in the last couple of elections. Is it just about Labour having an industrial strategy and talking about the jobs of the future? Or is it also something about the tone in which Labour leaders speak and the culture of the Labour Party and the sort of things that Labour prioritises?
2: So it's all of those things, but it's also more than that. So a few years ago, I was knocking on doors and Jeremy had been leader of the party for a few years and um, some guy said to me, you're all the same, not voting, you're all the same. And I remember sort of laughing and being like, have you not been paying attention? We are definitely not all the same anymore. You've got sort of, I think it was Theresa May at the time, I'm not sure, but Theresa May, Boris Johnson over here, and, you know, she'd gone, it's when she'd ditched her One Nation phase that she had for a few weeks, and then she'd gone on the sort of, I'm going to out UKIP, UKIP, and... So she was over there, and Jeremy was over here, and I just said to him, you know, come on, like, ten years ago, you could have said that to us, but you can't say that now. And he argued the toss, and he, he said, no, you are, you're all... I think that what he said to me was, as far as I'm concerned, you're all paddling in the same canoe. Um never heard that phrase before or (laughs) since, to be honest, but I spent a lot of time reflecting not just on the canoe analogy, but also how it could be that parties that had moved so far apart that a lot of people in the country were saying to us, we feel politically homeless because you've vacated the middle. Um, How could it be that they thought we were the same? And I think that there's something that's happened to the Labour Party in recent decades. We were we were built originally as a party that was built by working-class people, not just for them. And we arose out of the mutual societies and the burial societies and all the sort of cooperative movements around places like Lancashire, where I live, but Scotland as well, and Wales, and grew up all over the country, and people actually stepping forward to do what the state wasn't didn't exist to do. And we've lost that sense, really, of being a movement driven by working-class people right across the country, and middle-class people as well. There's always been a, we've always been a coalition of both. And so we've ended in a place where we, just, we sit in central London, and it's usually a small group of blokes, and it's always blokes. It, when you go behind the scenes, although the shadow cabinet looks very diverse and very mixed, when you go behind the scenes in the Labour Party, it's almost always a small group of men making decisions. And the commission think tank reports from their friends a mile down the road focus groups, opinion polls, and then we go We got on a train and we go to various different places in the country and we say, we know what your problem is, we know how to fix it and we're the people to do it. And actually the Tories do the same. And that paternalist sort of sentiment, I think, really, really is disliked by a lot of people in this country, middle and working class alike, in every nation and region of the UK. Because the answers to the problems that people in Aberdeenshire face with the collapse of North Sea oil and gas and the work that they're doing trying to rebuild the local economy and provide opportunities for for the skilled workforce. They are completely different challenges and solutions than the ones that people face in central Manchester where 50% of kids are growing up in poverty and there's enormous amounts of growth, but they can't get any connection to it at all. And the idea that we can just walk around with a sort of prescription for how you resolve people's problems when they're very different problems, and also the assets and the potential that exist in those communities are very different as well. I think that's why people, people think that we're all the same. And so there's an important lesson for Labour there, and you know, every candidate in this contest is talking about decentralisation and devolution and federalism and all sorts of different sort of plays on the same concept, but really at the heart of that is about power. Who has it and who doesn't? And at the moment, there are far too few people in this country who have it and far too many people who don't. And how
0: do you feel about federalism as an idea for, for the UK?
2: So I think that we're, we're inevitably moving to a more federal structure, by which I mean devolution to, to, to Scotland and Wales under the last government in particular was always intended as the starting point, not the end. And that process sort of stopped. And clearly there has to be a, a reopening of those questions about how you you, you devolve more powers outside of... Um, central London, uh, including to places in London, places like Dagenham where I launched my campaign where people feel just as disconnected from Westminster as the people of Wrexham and Rill do from Cardiff but Federalism can't be where it stops, because actually those problems do exist within every nation and region in the UK. I mean, I'm an MP in Wigan, which is officially part of Greater Manchester, although we think of ourselves as Lancashire, and it's quite important <laughs> to <laughs> us, so I couldn't go home if I didn't make that point. But um, the, the, you know, the, the, we feel shut out from decisions in Manchester, as we do from Westminster quite often. And it's no use just moving power from one group of men in Whitehall to another group of men in the Town Hall of the Senate at Holyrood because, actually, the trickle-out effects just don't work. So you have to build it from the ground up, and that's much, much harder to do.
0: So, and what is the answer to that? Because that was always the problem I had when people were saying, get power out of Westminster and get it to local communities." You're just going to give it to the Stoke Council. They're like, can't <laughs> collect the bins, and then you're going to put them in charge of even more important stuff. And, I, and you're right, I, I the people in that area don't want the council. They go, we want power for the community, but don't give it to that group of idiots. You don't even vote for them like, half the time. So then who do you give the power to? Do you get community
2: groups to bid for it? No, see, so so, like, I've been involved. It's really boring this, I'm sorry. Everyone's looking at us like, Oh, and the people I can see in this audience are looking at us like, oh my God.
0: The ones now that are awake are away about, loving
1: it. Now oh. you're talking about
2: things. <laughs> but actually, th- this is where people live out their lives, right? And I've been involved with this group, the Constitutional Reform Group for the last few years who are working right across the UK to try and build a new power settlement from the ground up. Because there are some things that you do at very, very local levels. So my local council is a good example of this, where a few years ago when they saw the cuts coming, it was around 2008, they said, we can't just keep salami slicing things, this is going to be massive. So we're going to have to get the community involved in what we do. So they came up with this idea about called The Deal, and it was basically a contract that was co-written between the people of Wigan and the council, And they started with a plan that they presented to the people of Wigan, and the Wiganers said, absolutely not, this is your plan, not ours, this is not a deal. So they tore it up and rewrote it. So we started with, we're going to close all the libraries. We ended up with keeping all the libraries open. But in return, bin collections have been slightly reduced, although street cleaning is up. Um, But we've got people out litter picking, we've had a rise in recycling rates, people have stepped forward to volunteer at the local libraries so that we could keep them open. And the community has got really involved in a way that I haven't really seen since the miners' strike in keeping the community going. And basically, we've used the social assets that we have. We're a really strong community. People know each other. You know, we often say it's sort of one in, one out in Wigan. Like, people don't come that often. It's not like where I used to represent in Hammersmith, where you had huge sort of churn and diversity People don't, you know, they don't move there as often, but they also don't leave. And
0: like the guy in Willy Wonka. Nobody ever goes in. <laughs> nobody ever comes in. Don't know.
2: I actually don't have a clue. What <laughs> up, but.
0: <laughs> but then, so then the deal. I mean, it sounds, it sounds a bit like, the Big Society.
2: Well, I thought the Big Society was quite interesting. Like, so this is meant to be an insult, I think. No, me? I'm not. T- but I, t- I did, I did genuinely think the Big Society was quite interesting. I never trusted it because. Some of the people behind it, you know, particularly when George Osborne picked it up, I think it just became a sort of cover for more cuts, but when it first started, there were Tory MPs like Jesse Norman who were involved in developing it, and there was a sort of recognition that, you know, for all of the arguments that have been going on between Labour about the role of the state and the role of the market, there was a thing called society in the middle, and that's where most people were quietly living out their lives, and there is strength and potential in society, and that we'd sort of missed that and we we've always known it in the labor movement but we've forgotten about it i think when you you know when you go to when you go around the country and you you talk to local labor members what you tend to find is that they go to their meetings and you know we do this as well we go to meetings and we have motions down and we have a row about the motions and then the motions don't go anywhere we meet the all that we don't but they're not connected up to anything in the party and we do with the minutes and we do all the admin and then we go home again and then what you could find on a saturday when you walk around the community is that in the local food bank and the credit union and the labor club um the law center there are there there are labor members right at the center of all of those things doing those things but not under a labor banner because there's no real um sort of way of labor doing that anymore they used to be in the old days but there isn't anymore and actually The big society is alive and well, and Labour is living it, we're just not living it in any way that we have a coherent story to tell about it. And to go back to your question about how we win again, this is how we win again, I think, because in 2024, we're going to be asking people to vote Labour who were two or three years old last time there was a Labour government. So banging on about Thatcher or the NHS is just not going to cut it. We're going to have to have a story to tell about why people can trust us, and that starts with what we do where we are in power and what we, how we create change in communities and being able to tell that story. And that's why I've said that we have to become a movement again that's rooted in our communities and that our local parties have to have the resources and the powers that they need in order to create that change. You know, I was talking to the CWU the other day, who Dave Ward, who's the General Secretary, is really supportive of the workers in Wigan because we've got a huge sorting office, we've got a lot of postal workers and we've got people who they're mums and dads and they work shifts and often the shifts conflict and so you've got the mum racing home to relieve the dad for childcare, so that he can go out and do his shift and they don't see each other and it's really it puts a lot of pressure on families and Dave and I were talking about you know one of the best things that we could do for people is not just turn up and do sort of gates meetings and organising workplaces, which is really important. But we could also do, why don't we set up a sort of Labour CWU childcare? Because that would really show people that we get it, that we're invested and that we're there for people all year round. And this used to be what Labour was. It was a movement and it was rooted in every community and we are going to have to become that again.
0: Um, On top of that as well, though, doesn't Labour need to feel like... It actually likes the country it's seeking to govern in terms of <laughs> the institutions of the country. Uh, no one would expect perhaps any of these Labour contenders to be raving monarchists, but certainly an affection for the armed forces and maybe a more sympathetic reading of British history and, and even a more sympathetic view about Britain's role in the world. Those things seem to really have been absent since the glare years.
2: So I think you have to have an honest reading of British history. So I'm half Indian, so I'm, my dad came to this country from Cal- Calcutta and um, few decades ago and so I think an honest assessment of Britain's history is much, much more important than a sort of, you know, an idealised version that you often get from the Tories. Not from all Tories but you do get it a lot from from the Tories. Um, And But I also, I do think that if you want to be in charge of the country you do have to love it and, you know, for all its sort of messy, diverse complexity and contradictions, you do have to really, you do have to really love the place, love the people and be proud of it. And I represent a town where a lot of young people go off and served in the armed forces. I've had two servicemen killed on duty since I was elected. And I do think there is a problem for Labour. We've always we've always seemed a bit uncomfortable about being patriotic, but patriotism to me is a profoundly left wing value it's about being part of something bigger than yourself and wanting to work together to create a better world to me that's very different from nationalism which divides people i don't want to be this small island nation that goes out punching above its weight i sort of question why we're punching at all we should be working with other countries
0: slapping above our way well <laughs> or what
2: you know maybe um maybe sort of uh, hugging hugging hugging, hugging, hugging hug- Hug it. You know, I mean, you know, working together with other countries and with to to raise working people up together—that's always been a really strong part of the labour movement. So, where I live in Wigan, I grew up in Berry, where they had, you know, we had the mines in Wigan. They had the textile mills. We had a few of those as well, but they they had the textile mills. And where I where I where I come from, a lot of my step family w- worked in those cotton mills, and a long time ago when the indian cotton pickers went out on strike gandhi came over and they applauded him off the plane and they stood shoulder to shoulder with those cotton pickers in india despite the fact that it was at huge personal cost because the mills had closed down and people weren't eating you know people were starving they were having to organize sort of self help in order to try and survive but they did it because they knew that it was really important and there's always been that really strong history of internationalism in parts of the world that you know, voted to leave in the last referendum and I don't think it's been well understood. It, it has existed there for a long time and it exists there still. And for me, there's something really powerful about that because that is patriotism to me. That is standing up for the best values of your country in order to advance the situation of people around the world. And that's not in contradiction to our internationalism. It's, it's, it's two sides of the same coin. And we, we've, I think we've got to start explaining to people why we believe in these things again during the eu referendum i just really felt that people didn't you know it's no use turning up and saying we're just going to give you money off your mobile phone roaming charges if you stay in the eu they've got to understand that history that's for me that's deeply personal that's my step family in berry and my family in india and people coming together to stand together in order to advance the situation of both and that for me is that's the sort of roots of my patriotism and, and love of country that I think is very different from a Tory version. But it's a story that Labour's got to tell again.
0: So if we were to define Nandyism, <laughs> God. we'd say it was uh, a sort of internationalist patriotism, uh, a kind of uh, a, a, a a patriotic localism, a, a kind of. Uh, a, a, what about the what about the sort of acceptance of, of the market? So are you are you, are you a sort of radical when it comes to this? Are you do you think the state should have more role in the economy, or do you think things the balance between state and, and public and private power is is pretty, pretty good as it is?
2: So, I'm not anti-private involvement, full stop, um, because a lot of my constituents work, you know, st- especially when the mine's closed, a lot of miners got um, redundancy settlements, and use them to set up local businesses, and employ local people, and do amazing work, and um, you know seeing when I was in the sh- I was in the shadow cabinet for a while did the shadow energy and climate brief and saw how the role of both public and private money coming together within a, a framework of tough environmental regulations could drive investment into clean energy technologies and some amazing work going on in the nuclear power in- industry for example just down the road in Warrington you've got people developing this sort of nuclear technology of the future and working out how to get rid of nuclear waste in a way that is safe and environmentally friendly and cut carbon emissions and all these things are really really important and so I think I think that's right but I also I think that when we talk about the public sector I'd like to see a bigger role for the public sector but I'd like to see a different sort of role for the public sector one that walks alongside people at the most difficult times in their lives and hands them the tools and the conditions in which to change their own circumstances so when I, I spent 10 years in the voluntary sector before I came into Parliament and it was really at Centerpoint youth homelessness charity that I started to realize that I believe in big states and I'd come in thinking right the state needs to fix this for these young people because they're homeless so we need to build them houses and we need to you know give them all the things that they need in order that we can change their lives. And what I started to realise is it was them that changed their lives. They knew better than we did what they wanted their lives to look like and how they were going to get there. But they needed us to put in place the support that they had. So you've got to put them back in the driving seat of what that change looks like. And and also I think at this election we had a bit of a problem with the way that we talked about the public sector. So we talked about nationalising the railways, and I did think it was popular actually. Round our way, the Tories have just nationalised the railways today, no, um, and rightly so, because people haven't been able to get to work for two years back home. But we didn't explain why, and we didn't explain what that would do. So, you know, nationalising the railways is right, but then the next thing, once you put them into public hands, what are you going to do to make them good railways? How are you going to make them responsive to the people who use them? That's the next part of the story that Labour has to tell. And we've got to have some answers on that. And we've got to have some answers on that pretty quickly. And, you know, with the energy industry, I—I I was when I was the Shadow Energy Secretary, Jeremy had just won a huge mandate to lead the party off the back of a, an energy manifesto that promised to, di- well, do all sorts of things. Reopen the coal mines and cut carbon emissions was one of them, which we thankfully... Then dropped but there was a there was also a um, there was a one of the things that he wanted to do was buy back the energy companies the big six energy companies and take them into public hands and I think that then became our policy again but I think you can do something much more radical than that you can you can take them into um, public hands without having to give these huge subsidies to big national energy multinational energy companies you private companies you could You could do what Labour councils all over the country have been doing. You could be working with local communities to set up their own clean energy schemes and sources of clean energy, whether it's using the power of the Thames, as Dagenham were trying to do a few years ago, or whether it's setting up solar farms like they did in Plymouth, where the council's underwritten community schemes, solar panels in Hackney, you've got tenants organisations working together to do it. Right around the country, I think... Manchester was building its own power station, never to be knowingly outdone by anyone else. And um, you had all these Labour councils setting up their own clean energy schemes and disrupting the power of the Big Six and taking power back into public hands. And they were doing something really exciting as well. They were rebuilding municipal socialism. So they were were making money off these schemes. And then they were ploughing it back into libraries and parks and leisure facilities and helping cut money off local people's energy bills who couldn't afford them. And in doing that themselves, they were actually taking power back and they were enabling local people then to make decisions about how that money was spent. That's so much more radical, so much more exciting, so much more 21st century than just saying, we're just going to buy back all these utilities and then somehow by taking the power away from a group of men in the private sector and giving it to a group of men in the public sector we will solve this.
0: So you're so you still nationalise these things, but just nationalise them in a different way. That's the difference between Nandy and Corbyn.
2: Well, it's the it's public ownership, right? But I have to say that Jeremy was really supportive of this. So when I I wrote the speech for the conference, I'd been the Shadow Energy Secretary for about a week, and there I was standing on a platform saying, "Here's my vision for the future of energy and climate change." And and I wrote the speech, and he I sent it to him and said, "Does this look look alright?" And he said, "It's great, just." put in you know, when when you say I want to do something more radical, just say Jeremy and I because Yeah, you're right about that actually. And people I know people, you know, there's a view of Jeremy that he never changes his mind about anything. Mm. And I do think he has... You know, I do... I, do, I, do, I mean, he, he sticks to his guns, right? There's no question about it, but...
0: But he hates violence.
2: But he, ha- he hates violence. He does hate violence, actually. He genuinely really does hate violence. But he... 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 He's... Uh,
1: he,
2: he, 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 you know, he has values, he has principles, and he won't deviate from them, and sometimes that can be a bit infuriating, and sometimes he's right. But on when i worked with him on that energy brief i did find that he was very willing to move and very willing to compromise and i, I can't you know i don't know it was only energy and climate change that we worked on we only did it for a year but I, that was genuinely my experience of him
1: one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes
2: nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt
1: until you tried it on same goes for your health care
0: Just as your analysis of his leadership, I I mean, do do you feel that... uh, Don't
2: ask me to rate him out of ten. Come on. Come on. Okay. Not this one again. Then you'll say to me, Churchill, hero or villain...
0: I would never, ever, out of five. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it's difficult for you, because you're having to talk to a Labour membership that really likes Jeremy Corbyn. So how far in this contest do you feel you can really tell the truth about what you think went wrong in the last few years?
2: I think our labor membership is very like me, right It's that so my my labor members in Wigan they don't agree with a lot of the things that I do, but I'm their MP, so it matters and they'll you know they'll come out people who come in out knocking on doors with me during the general election who they weren't just doing it to get a labor government they were doing it because I'm their Labour MP and because of that they are loyal and they are supportive and they will go out and die in a ditch to make sure that you get re-elected. And I think most members of the Labour Party feel like that about every leader we've ever had, to be honest. And, you know, at the time when Tony Blair was the leader, people felt like that about him, people felt like that about Gordon Brown, they felt like that about Ed Miliband. And the more that they come under, every Labour leader comes under attack from some of the media, say some of the media, because there are parts of the media that are, you know, play it with a straight bat or a very supportive. But the when they come under fire, I think there is a the you know there's always a feeling in the Labour Party that we pull together and we protect our own. We are like a family. We like sometimes we are like the worst bits of your family. Um, we have furious rows behind closed doors, um, and uh, you know there's often a few drinks involved. But we we then go out and show a united front to the world, and that's when Labour works, and that's what Labour has to be able to do again. And I think that. I think that most of our members are, you know, they don't want to see Jeremy trashed and they don't want to see him personally attacked, and I agree with that. I don't want to see that either. I, don't, I think being a leader of the Labour Party, is a leader of the opposition is the hardest job in British politics. People always say it, but I think that's true. And I think whoever does it deserves some thanks for it. But we do have to have an honest assessment of where we've been, where we were when we we're in government and where we've been over the last 10 years. And so for example, one of the first speeches that I made in this leadership contest was about internationalism and said, we got it wrong. In the last few years, you know, particularly in relation to Russia, we thought, the leadership thought that the job was to side with the Russian government that was oppressing its people rather than the Russian people themselves. And that is not an internationalism that I recognise. But equally then, you know, a couple of weeks later, I went back to Centrepoint where I used to work, to the Soho hostel and did a speech about the welfare state and said there was an important moment in 2015 when the party chose to elect a leader who said... No more shying away from the fact that we protect the most vulnerable people in this country and that we want to be decent towards people who are on benefits and we want to be decent towards immigrants and asylum seekers and that we're going to wear our values on our sleeve and we're going to be proud to say we're the party that invests in public services. That was really important for us because I don't think anyone ever believed it really. I don't think they ever believed that the Labour Party really wants to be horrible to all these people. We don't. We are a compassionate Party, and we need to be honest with people about that, and go out and make the argument and win it, even when it's hard. Now, I, don't, I mean, you, you know, I don't know how this leadership contest is going to pan out. Maybe this message is going down like a lead balloon, but I don't feel like it is actually. I think ra- in this leadership contest, I feel more than any other time that I've seen a leadership contest in the last decade feels like our members are open to doing things differently. We've tried to do the same thing over and over again for 15 years. We've just kept changing the guy at the top and thinking it would solve our problems. And I think there is a willingness amongst the Labour movement from left to right and right across the country to actually change the way that we do things.
0: But there's also another trend in that. They were changing the guy at the top, but they were changing the guy at the top in an ever-leftward direction. And Labour has lost now four elections. The more it has drifted from the position on the map where it was able to win... Do you think Labour can win from a position that is to the left of new Labour?
2: Yeah, because I think the country's moved. So in 2015, when we were knocking on doors, I got, uh, you know, I, would, I spent a lot of time in Parliament talking about poverty and the collapse of public services and rough sleeping back on the streets and the crisis in mental health. And it didn't really chime, if I'm honest, on the doorstep. People would often say to me, I don't think it's as bad as you all say it is. And that, I think that's partly because, you know, as a Labour MP, you, you have lots of people coming to your surgery, people who've walked miles to access the local food bank and, you know, mums who have to walk home with a baby and a toddler and big, heavy bags with tins in and are in floods of tears and don't know how they're going to last through the weekend. And so you, you see all of that. You see the sharp end of what's happening. And there was a disconnect with the wider public. And then by 2017 we were knocking on doors and people were saying, this is terrible, this is really terrible. It started to hit things like the National Health Service in a really big way. And people had started to really feel that when their elderly dad had a fall and they'd gone down to A&E, they could see what was happening and they, they really didn't like it. And I think people are looking for quite fundamental change in this country now. And I think we're a very decent country and I think you can go out and make the argument for things like immigration and fair treatment of immigrants and um, a good social security safety net. And people will accept that, but they are, they'll they only accept it on the basis that they think that it's fair. And so you have to start from where people are and you have to understand what their concerns are. Best example I can give you is free movement. I, I was the first Labour MP, I think, to come out and say the party should drop its opposition to free movement after the referendum. It was always going to be a choice between whether we were in a customs union and had access to the single market or whether we we were ending free movement, and for me, with the Labour Party, we protect people's jobs. But also, free movement has been a good thing for this country, and it has brought, you know, as an internationalist party, surely we've got to believe that people being able to work and study and move and meet people and know one another and see the world is a really, really good thing for all of us. But the problem with free movement that grew up over decades really certainly since especially since the EU accession countries joined and people started to become more aware of it was that over that time we used free movement as an excuse not to invest in young people and that happened in almost every European country when I went to Germany it was exactly the same in Berlin they were saying free movement's great and everyone supports it and then I went to Cottbus which is a former industrial town about an hour outside of Berlin very similar to Wigan and all the All the people, older people who were left there were saying exactly the same thing. Our young people can't get jobs. This just benefits the skilled and the highly mobile. And you can make the case for free movement and you can win the argument, but you can't do it when you're telling people that it's great nurses are coming to work at our hospital and you've just abolished the nursing bursary. And young people who live just a few miles down the road from the hospital are saying, where's my EMA, where's my nursing bursary? I'm glad that people can come and work at this hospital, but why can't I? And Labour's got to understand that. When I say we've got to be rooted in our communities again and we've got to show that we've got skin in the game, that's really what I mean. We we didn't understand that. We couldn't hear it. We dismissed it as concerns that were racist and xenophobic in places where, you know, working-class communities like mine have run the far right out of town time and time again. We did it with Tommy Robinson last year, and the minute that he turns up again, we'll do it again. And we dismissed all of that because we just didn't understand the people that we represented anymore. And we've got to show that we've got it.
0: So where do you put yourself on the spectrum then between New Labour and and Jeremy Corbyn? Are you closer to one than the other?
2: I mean, I suppose when I first got... This is a really complicated question because when I first got elected in 2010, I was the hard left of the Parliamentary Labour Party. And I haven't changed my views on very much in that time. But the world, the ground has shifted around me and so you know in the intervening years I've been labelled everything from a sort of you know blue labour to a red Tory and uh, hard left and momentum and militant and progress and everything like every label that you can possibly attach to people we have found ways to attach to people in recent years and I just you know I don't want to sort of duck away from the question because I I suppose traditionally you would say I was left of centre but i just I think the way that we 've found to like put each other into boxes in this party has been a total disaster that 's sort of traditionally what you expect your enemies, your political opponents to do to you we 've just spent years doing it to each other and it's we 've done it in every faction of this party and it 's desperate it will It will kill us and when i When I think about my friends in the labor movement i mean i 'm saying this to you in the green room earlier is that Like, a lot of the people standing in this leadership contest, I would count as friends. And you wouldn't expect that I would be friends with Jess Phillips and Clive Lewis, but actually they're two of my best mates in Parliament. Yeah,
0: but the stuff you said about them back there was awful. (laughs) The stuff they get up to, and together. (laughs) (laughs) But I know what you mean, but isn't it more just that, you know, for for, there might be people here tonight who are members of the Labour Party or uh, affiliates who, uh, you know, uh, might think, well, some of these contestants are new to me, I just want to know, you know, I'm say a Jeremy Corbyn sponsor and I wanna know who the best custodian that is now it's probably Rebecca Long Bailey. But if you're saying a sort of Kinnockite and you go, Well, who's the best Kinnock candidate for me? Right. Is it Lisa Nandy or is it Keir Starmer? If you're a Blairite, are you the best candidate for the Blairite wing? So
2: let, let me let me give you a bit of a sense of this, right? So I I grew up in Manchester in the 1980s. It was a very political time. I mean, people were losing their jobs, We had rough sleeping on the streets. Manchester at that time, it's before the EU stepped in and re- put lots of money in to rebuild it, it felt like it was falling to pieces. Derelict shops and buildings and so on. And um, there was a real sense that the government wasn't just not for us, that they were actively working against us. And, um So I am political, very political, and always have been. And my family is very political in lots of different ways. My dad's a Marxist, my grandad was a liberal, and we've got everything in between in my family. But I've always been left, and I joined the Labour Party as soon as I could as a teenager and got stuck in because I thought that that was the best way to make the world better, and I still genuinely think that now. And I spent the ten years before I came into Parliament as a housing caseworker in Walthamstow and then working with homeless teenagers for Centrepoint and then fighting for the rights of migrant children, refugee and migrant children in immigration detention and being made destitute by the last Labour government before I I got elected in 2010. And you know, I'm prepared to stand up and challenge power wherever I find it, if it's being used for bad, not for good and I thought that the last Labour government was phenomenal in some of the things that were done, the minimum wage, investment in health and education, you know, the people going blind waiting for cataract operations, people forget all of this now, but this was life-changing, it was game-changing under the last Labour government, but there was also, there was was another side to that, things like the treatment of migrants and asylum seekers, and, you know, I chose, I I choose, I always choose to go to where it's hard, not where it's easy, and to make a stand and to, try and to try and take the argument on where it's unpopular and win it and never shy away from trouble in that respect. And I came into Parliament in 2010, you know, very much about challenging the status quo and saying well, Labour isn't the party of the status quo and we've got to advance and we've got to do better and we've got to start investing, you know, ar- arguing for investment in public services and for compassion around asylum seekers and so on. And that would, I suppose, put me on the left of the party. But I also at that time got rung up by Tessa Jowell. Who, had, who asked me if I wanted to come and help her on the Olympics, um, which she was still... I mean, anyone who's ever met has tested out will know but whatever she's involved with, she's basically running. And she was still basically running the Olympics, and George Osborne and Sebco were being just chased around by her being told what to do. And um, it was amazing, actually. And she comes from a completely different wing of the party from me. Traditionally, she's more on the right. I was more on the left but it was one of the best experiences of my life, seeing how the Olympics was delivered, but also learning that there is strength in every tradition in the party. And I know that as well from my own family history because my family span a very wide coalition. And that's why, you know, one of the things I've done since I've been in parliament is champion the cause of progressives working together and why I've worked with MPs from all (laughs) political parties to try and make things better for people because the people that you represent simply can't wait. And you've got to do that. And I wrote a book with Caroline Lucas a few years ago about that and about how we need to make our politics much more like that again. And that is I suppose that is me really. I'm 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 to the left of the party, but I am you know, want to see radical, deep fundamental change and compassion and decency, especially when it's hard. But I want to work with people and I want to persuade people and convince people, and I want to take people on a journey and build the biggest possible coalitions to do it. I suppose what I'm trying to say is Labour often thinks it has to choose between its heart and its head, you know, winning power and having values. I don't believe that's true. And I think that the the reason that I'm in this leadership contest is because I don't think we have to, and I think with me we can do both.
0: Uh, So let's say you become leader of the Labour Party. How do you deal with some of the harder elements of it, and not just people who are ideologically out of step with Labour history, but people whose behaviours, perhaps, uh, brought the party into disrepute. I mean, would you ever ever envisage a time where you do what Michael Foote and Neil Kinnock did, where they prescribed militant? Would you ever consider doing that with Momentum?
2: No, because a lot of my friends joined the party to join Momentum and to get involved, and the. But re- they could
0: just choose to be Labour members, and you could say, look, yeah. you can't have dual membership.
2: And that that's that's the goal, right? The reason that a lot of my mates joined for to get involved with Momentum was because they didn't want to come to meetings and discuss motions that weren't going anywhere, and talk about which printer cartridges we were going to buy for the. Printer. Well, honestly, I'm not joking. i spent a lot of time fundraising for new risographs and arguing about which printer cartridges we're going to buy in the last 25 years in the Labour Party. And, you know, nobody, nobody wants that. Even the people who are passionately having the argument about the type of printer cartridges really deep down do not want that.
0: And do you have, do you have a favourite brand or, or model? They're by the activists in the room.
2: Please don't reopen it. It went on for eight months in Wigan, <laughs> and I just I can't bear it. Please don't revisit it. Um. I've got to be getting emails tonight from people. As soon as this thing goes out, I'm going to get emails from people saying, well, well actually, it- we never resolved that. <laughs> and it'll be on, be on the agenda for our next meeting. Well, there would but, be a
0: letter at the printer's Pride.
2: But it, <laughs> have, it has been really, really frustrating for a lot of people, a lot of Labour members, is that we... You know, I joined the Labour Party, like most of my members, I think, because I wanted to play a part in changing the world. And... Some of the ways that you do that, knocking on doors in the rain, delivering leaflets after work, you know, all those things I've done my fair share of and I'm happy to and I was out knocking on doors with one of our local council candidates last weekend and I enjoy it and I like it and I think a lot of members do. But that can't be the be-all and end-all of what your membership of the Labour Party looks like. And, you know, when, when, we, when Momentum was set up... Some of the stuff that they were doing, you know, people setting up energy co-ops in order to change the world, rather than just signing a petition about a better energy market to their MP. This is really exciting stuff, and this is where Labour has to be. And I want those people to know that under my leadership, they're not just welcome in the party, but they're actually valued and they have a role. And I'd much rather we're doing this under a Labour umbrella I'd rather that we're doing it as the Labour Party rather than as one faction of the Labour Party but that in a way is a challenge to the party as a whole is that we've got to change to become much more dynamic much more radical much more rooted in our communities much more empowering of our members and our constituency parties in order to deliver that change where where I think you were sort of going with that though and where I think it's fair and that you've got a point is that there are parts of the party, and it's not confined to the left actually, you sit the the there are factions on the left and right of the party that are mirror images of one another in the way that they treat people and the way that they treat each other, who 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 essentially have very little time or respect for each other, who want to be the people who are in charge or nothing else, who see other people in the party as the enemy. And that culture is really, really existential for Labour. If we go out and claim to want to be build a more compassionate kinder fairer country but people can see us clubbing the hell out of each other behind the scenes and treating each other without decency or warmth or dignity we're never going to win power we're never going to win back people's trust and so that culture has to change and people who want to work together be decent be challenging to one another unity is not uniformity we can be you know our strength is our breadth but those people who want to do that they are absolutely labelled to the core, whether I agree with them about nationalisation or not. The people who who don't want to do that, they shouldn't have a place in the Labour Party because they, they're, they're killing us. And when I left the Shadow Cabinet in 2016, that was the argument that I had with, with Jeremy and some of the politicians around him about that culture will kill us and those factions, whether they exist within the leader's office or whether they exist on the back benches, they will kill us. And I don't think I was wrong about that, to be honest, because here we are a few years later having continued the civil war and look where it leads.
0: But do you see those two factions as equally culpable?
2: Yeah, I do. I think they, I think they grow out of one another. So I think that, you know, I, t- so in t- about 20 years ago, I went to work for a guy called Neil Gerard, who's the MP for Walthamstow, who's Stella Crease's predecessor, and he was a member of the campaign group. And at the time, you know, the party, I suppose, in my view, had moved to the right and there were, you know, I wanted to see a party that was much more, um, you know, for example, Neil was opposed to the Iraq war. So was I. And it was during the time of the Iraq war. I wanted to see us being much bolder about going out and investing. I could see why we were so cautious. I've understood it more as I've got older that, you know, I haven't been out of power for that long. There was a real nervousness about about saying we'll break with the Tory spending plans, I heard Alistair Campbell once describe it as, you know, they felt like they were carrying a Ming vase over yes. a tightrope. I think that might have been on your podcast actually. And um, it, you know, I can see why they were cautious, but actually, there was a housing crisis in London. It was desperate. People were sleeping on the streets. There was a hou- the housing benefit system had collapsed. Overcrowding was rife, and something had to be done. And I went to work for Neil and. Um, uh, Uh, just at a time when all of that needed to change and found somebody who was a very strong advocate of all of that and just felt this is the direction of travel that the Labour Party needs to take Um, but you can do that without the the nastiness and the culture war and the existentialness and he was a kind compassionate guy who treated every colleague with compassion but at the time his views were considered completely beyond the pale in the Labour Party. Be- build housing, be kind to refugees, he was told, you know, stop it, you're going to cost us an election, you're not welcome. And actually, you know, they, they were compl- that group of people were completely shut out of of power. They weren't allowed on select committees, they weren't allowed on bill committees, they had the worst offices in Parliament. I remember him voting against something once, and we, get, we were threatened with being moved into a porter cab- cabin out the back of Normanshaw North, which is the worst building in Parliament. And, uh, you know, I said to him, you've got to stop this or we're going to end up in, like, some kind of shed out the back. And uh, well, thanks know, to Jeremy. But, but Jeremy was a... F- that's when I first met Jeremy. I was 21 years old, and they were all being treated like that, as if they were completely beyond the pale and they had no place in the Labour Party. And you can see why then, you know, you fast-forward a few years and that wing of the party has just won the leadership contest. You can see how that behaviour then gets played back to the other side... But my argument to Jeremy in 2016, and it would be my argument still, is we've got to break this cycle. You know, we're not here to get revenge on each other. We're here to look outwards to the country and win for the people that we represent and change things for the people we represent. And, I, you know, I can't summon the energy to get out of bed in the morning to fight other members of the Labour Party. I'm just not interested in it. Like, this is a really, really tough job Hang on, they're times. in the bedroom. Are <laughs> <laughs> <You I> they? Think- <laughs>
0: They're everywhere!
2: You know, I mean, who who can be bothered to do that? And actually, what's the point in the end? I've been a Member of Parliament for 10 years now, and we've just lost over and over again. And every time we lose in Parliament, I have to go home and explain to the people what I'm supposed to be changing things for, that I can't, yet again, I can't do it. I don't want to do that anymore. So that's, you know, we've got to leave all that behind. And I think there is a new generation of politicians coming through. It's not necessarily an age thing. It's just a new generation of politics who've come into politics later and just think, enough of this, and we're determined to break it. And that's why I said that the way that we conduct ourselves in this leadership contest really matters, because we've got to raise the bar. No more attacking each other. I don't want the next leader of the Labour Party, whoever she is, coming out wounded. <laughs> <for themselves.
0: laughs> so, in that spirit, let's talk about your, con- you, your, uh, your opponents in this context, but let's, let's say some nice things about them. So... What is Rebecca Long Bailey's biggest strength?
2: Well, she's northern.
0: <laughs> That's undeniable.
2: So, yeah, I would go with that.
0: <laughs> yeah. um, politically, what's her biggest strength?
2: Um, well, she's her own person, I think. And, you know, people say she's continuity Corbyn, but I think she can speak for herself. And over the course of this contest, I think you will see her speak for herself. And you've got to judge what she, You know, I'm not here to speak for her. You've got to judge her on her own merits, but... I get a bit fed up with women being sort of pigeonholed as the sort of successes of men. I think, let her speak, see what she's got to say, judge her on that.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I think you're right. I think when she gave Corbyn 10 out of 10, she, uh, she clearly spoke for herself. Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> in
0: fact...
2: But she can pronounce Richard Bergen, <laughs> so... <laughs> so there is that.
0: I thought it was Richard Bergen. I mean, let's not, let's not rule out the fact... He got his own name wrong. <laughs> let's not rule that out. I Some, think that was that was ruled out too early in this it process. Sounds
2: dangerously like fake news to me. But let's. Well,
0: I, look, I, I pronounce it how I pronounce it. he's right? <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: so inherently cal- is it quite. Uh, uh, I think you should. I think you should get him on this podcast to see if he can do as good an impression of you as you do of him.
0: I think he's the enemy of bees. <laughs> um, deep cut there for, for fans of the Virgin Cannon. Um so, uh the the what's the best thing about Keir Starmer?
2: Um Well somebody somebody just said good hair. <laughs> yeah, but I can
1: not realize good hair.
2: Good hair? Can I have good hair?
1: If you
0: I mean don't speak for a man. It's a
2: bit. It's a bit... <laughs> um, what's the best thing about Keir Starmer? He's a nice guy. Yeah. He's a yeah. He's a genuinely nice guy, and he, you know, came into, um, you know, he was director of public prosecutions, I think genuinely wanting to make a difference to the world. I met. That's when I first met him. I was um, working with child trafficking victims, who were being um, picked up in cannabis factories and nail bars and being prosecuted by the CPS for things like illegal working. Um, One 15-year-old boy who'd been trafficked to Britain and had been basically held prisoner in a cannabis factory and had serious mental health problems as a result, had been picked up in a raid and then had been held in a young offenders institution and then (coughs) prosecuted for circumventing electricity. I mean, they'd literally tried to come up with anything that they could to put this kid in prison. And we got so incensed about it that we demanded a meeting with Keir Starmer, who happily met us and listened to the case. We didn't actually get it resolved in there. I gather this still goes on when I talk to friends who are still working with child trafficking victims. But he, he listened, and I was impressed by that. I was impressed by the fact that his officials didn't really think that he should take the meeting, and he did. And. Um, uh, so he's, he's a nice guy and he's decent mm-hmm. and he wants, to, he wants to do the right thing and I think that's really important one of the things I've hated about politics in the last few years is the way in which all of our motivations get questioned all the time and Labour does it there are factions of Labour that do it a lot to each other and I think we've got to get away from that you know you might disagree with people you might, you might disagree with Richard Bergen you might think Keir's got great hair, you might not, but let, you know, we can't question people's motivations anymore. I think we've got to you know, we've got to trust that people mean what they say.
0: Interesting subplot to the Keir Starmer uh, anecdote there. He listened, but he didn't deliver.
2: Well, it was quite I mean, to be fair to him, it was quite difficult because you had lots of different police forces, so we needed to get the training delivered in different areas, and then we needed to get the CPS to move, and I'd, to be to be really honest, I can't really remember why the CPS didn't move in the end, they were, there was a sort of, I think part of it was political, it was that they had, there was pressure on them to get more prosecutions, and that, you know, in a way that was sort of good, good grounding for me before I came into Parliament, is that the way in which you set up these targets and these pressures can have really, really damaging implications for people if you're not careful about how you do it. But, um, but he did listen, and you know he's a he's a good he's a good bloke.
0: Uh, best thing about Emily Thornberry?
2: Ah, she's a right laugh. <laughs> so, I mean, to be really honest with you, when Jess dropped out of the leadership contest, I just thought, God, people are go- we're going to bore people to tears if Emily doesn't stay in? <laughs> and you know, we were at, we were in Nottingham the other day at Open Labour, and I've always like I've always gotten really well with Emily. She's she was an MP when I first started, and she she sort of took me under her wing a bit and looked out for me. I remember shouting at one of the question time producers you need to get Lisa Nandy on your show and stuff and they were, you know, it was around the time when Chucker was a really big thing in the Labour Party, when he was still in the Labour Party and, <laughs> um, you know, she was saying you've got to have people like Lisa Nandy on she's left wing and she's got things to say and it needs to be heard so she's, she's, she's great but she also she 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 knows how to work a crowd, right? And yeah. we were in Nottingham at the weekend and I could see people really responding to it and um, she was cracking jokes and she was livening the thing up and it's it's important. I think one of the things I feel that we've lost a bit in the Labour Party in recent years is our sense of humour. And people don't like humourless politicians. Like, we've got to be able to have a laugh. We've got to be able to show people that we can have a laugh.
0: So, uh, let's say you win. Uh, you will also get delivered by the membership a lovely deputy. Now, Rebecca long Baylor uh, obviously wants Angela Rayner to be her, um, uh, her deputy. Do you have a preference on who you'd like to see serve underneath you?
2: Underneath me? Oh, my goodness. Sounds ridiculous. So it's a different job, right, for starters. So it's yeah. a completely different job from the leader. So when people say, you know, why isn't somebody going for deputy or somebody going for leader? It's because the job of the deputy is really about the party. And, you know, it's a sort of John Prescott-type job. You are of and for the party, you stand up for the party, and you sort the party out as well. When the structures aren't working for members, when they aren't working for us as a whole, you've got to be able to resolve all of that. The the job of the leader is to go out and create that bridge with the country and to make sure that we're connecting with the country and that the country know that we're for them. And there have been very few times when I've had to choose between Labour and Wigan, but I can honestly say hand on heart that when I have had been forced into that position, which is only a couple of times on benefit cuts, once when we were supporting them when I didn't feel that we should, and on Brexit, on those two issues, I've always chosen Wigan. And I think that's, it's a different thing. Um, I'd love to work with quite a few of them. I <coughs> would happily work with any of them. And I think that the, um, the, the sort of way in which the leader and deputies broke apart in recent years has been one of the biggest problems for the Labour Party. So I don't really want to pick a side, but there are a couple of people on that ticket who are really good mates of mine. And um, let's just say that if, for example, Angela Rayner happened to win, my pledge to move Labour HQ out of central London would suddenly become a lot more fun for me because Ashton Underline and Wigan are not that far apart. So you could see a nice little commute for the pair of us emerging somewhere around Warrington. Okay.
0: So that uh, maybe maybe leaning more towards Rainer. I mean I know we talked about him a lot tonight, but Richard Bergen is standing for the deputy leadership. I mean that'd at least be a good laugh. I mean you talk about a Prescott figure, he's kind of like the modern Prescott.
2: So (laughs) <laughs> Just to remind you, there are other people in this race as well and in the party. And um, so, one of the people that's really shaken up the deputy leadership race, I think, Rosanna Alan Khan. Yes. So, people don't know her as well, but she has you know she's she's an a and e doctor who came into parliament a few years ago and she really has shaken things up quite a lot and she's had some really interesting things to say and i was really I was really interested to hear a lot of the trade unionists who you know they've they've nominated other candidates and they 've known those candidates for a long time and have good reasons for wanting to support them but there are people like that who've come through who i don 't know if Rosanna's going to win she may not win she 's not the favorite but you know we always get upsets in Labour leadership and deputy leadership contests. so who knows? Um, But there are people like that who are coming through who I think... It does give me a lot of hope about where we go next because I think people look at politics often and think we're not that good. We don't... You know, we're all in it for ourselves. And you have got some really good people coming through with passion and energy and ideas connected to the country who have something to say. And the last time I think... I really felt that there was that sort of insurgent sense amongst the Parliamentary Labour Party of all these people coming forwards and being prepared to bust the thing open and work together as a team to move us forwards. I reckon that was probably in the the 90s when Tony Blair, people say he won us three elections, but that team ran all the way from people like Claire Short and Robin Cook all the way through to Derry Irvine and Tessa Jowell. And I think you're starting to see a bit of that emerge in this contest. I know everyone says it's really boring. It's been very long... That is definitely true. It feels like we've been doing elections and then leadership elections and deputy leadership elections for quite a while. And I get that. But actually, if you listen to what some of these people are saying, it does give you a lot of hope about what comes next.
0: OK, let's take a couple of questions from the audience. So if you raise your hand indicate clearly. OK, and if I can ask for quick questions and quick answers, okay. that'd be great. Thank you.
2: Great. Um, hi, did you talk a lot about um, the doorstep and the speaking you know, people on doorstep? I was just wondering, like, what are the biggest issues that come up on your set? Is it Brexit or is it literally, I want my bus to run on time? Any excuse to talk about buses? Um, Yeah, So, all sorts, really. But I suppose the biggest sentiment towards Labour is that we just, that people just, at this election, they didn't trust us. That was the overwhelming sense. So, you know, even if they trusted their local MP or their local candidate, they just genuinely didn't think that they could put us in a position where we were making decisions on people's behalves and then they could trust us to change it and that's you know there's a there's a big job of work for us to do I think to sort that out but um brexit is not the be all and end all in this country and I think it became symbolic of something and a lack of trust in both remain and leave areas I was knocking on doors in both remainers. Remainers felt they couldn't trust us to sort of safeguard that internationalism and those close relationships with the EU, and Leavers felt that they couldn't trust us to to show them a level of respect and and deliver what they we we'd said that they got to do. And um, trust trust was it really? It came off people in waves everywhere I went.
0: Trust the main thing. Uh, there's a lady over there with her with her hand up. <laughs> Sorry about this, Jules. I'm sending you all over, but it's good for the pedometer.
2: Fitbit. Fitbit. Go across different areas. Do you have any friends who are Tories? And um, so I've got a. Ma- I've, he's going to get hounded now by the mean I've got a mate from uni who's a. To- well, he's a Tory voter. I, <laughs> I know. I've been working on him, but it's not getting me anywhere. Um, so but you know you know there's those t-shirts that say never kissed a Tory and loads of people wear them at Labour Party conference. And I did say to a friend of mine a while ago, how would you know like, who was going round at fourteen in nightclubs being like, you know, can I ask about your voting presence? And I do think there's right, something All right, some of us did, but f- fuck <laughs> <it. laughs> Some of these strange people. I do think there is something a bit weird about when we said, you know, I'd never be friends with a Tory we are going to have to win back a lot of people who voted Tory at the next election if we want to win power. And they're not just people who voted Tory once, a lot of them are people who voted Tory two or three times. And just to go, get a majority of one, we're going to have to convince them. So I think it's right you know, to, for people like me to say, I hate what the Tory party has done to this country, whilst also recognising that not everyone who votes for a different party is automatically our enemy.
0: And so just onto that, who's your favourite Tory MP?
2: I'm going to curse them, aren't I?
0: But just, which you know, it can be for any reason.
2: I think um, so. Therese Coffee does good karaoke. Okay. Um,
0: And this is the final question of the night, and therefore the best question we've had all evening. No pressure. Here we go. The golden question. The question to end all questions. If you have free movement, how can you? (laughs) <laughs> how can you convince people to invest in training, how can you pay for health care, education and welfare if you have completely free
1: movement
2: so the, the free mis- movement system we have doesn't stop you from doing any of those things and actually that that is a, one of the frustrations that I think a lot of us had during the referendum campaign was that a lot of the issues that people were raising with us were issues that The UK government was responsible for and that the UK government should have dealt with and in a way it became a referendum on political power full stop and that slogan take back control it caught the mood in towns like mine like no other in my lifetime but I think it was not just a referendum on on the EU it was a referendum on Westminster and it was a referendum on the town hall as well and for me that That was the failure of Labour's response, really, is we did two things. First of all, we missed the political earthquake that had just happened, and we went straight to the technical and legal side of the question, and we had debates about free movement and access to the single market, but we didn't go back and talk to people about power and listen to people about how they wanted power to change. And then the second mistake, huge mistake that we made, was that when Theresa May changed tack and said, we want to... Um, Pick a side now because we think it's in our electoral interests as a Tory party and we're picking leave And we're going to fight this out until the other side has been crushed. We should have always said that is absolutely Not acceptable. That's what Tories do. They divide and rule. Labour is better than that And I have you know everyone says Wigan is a leave voting town But I live in Wigan and I voted remain and so did a third of people who live there and they're my constituents too and I've consistently said they've got to ha- they have got to have they as much right to a stake in the future of this country as the two-thirds of people that I represent who voted leave. And we should never have allowed this to become a zero-sum game where we fought it out between us until one side was crushed and the other side prospered. There's no future for the country in that. And there's no future for Labour in that either. And I think we can do better. And that's why, I suppose, just to sort of finish this, because I can't end on we've mullered it all up, can I? Because that would be a really depressing into to the evening. But especially because you started with that and everybody knows it. But we, we can do better than this. And I think there's an expectation out there in the country that somebody, nobody is doing this. Nobody is trying to speak for the whole nation at the moment. And I think there's a real desire out there in the country for all the labels, all the boxes that we've put people in over recent years, North and South and Scotland and England and Wales and remain and leave, Tory and Labour for all of those boxes that we put people in. I think there's a real desire in this country to pull together and move forwards. And I think we can do it. And I think if Labour recovers our ambition and we go out and we're brave... And we take on the argument and we get out there to the country and we win it. You could see us in power again in four years' time and you could see a much, much better country. And that's why I'm here, really. I mean, as well as because I got to have a pint (laughs) and because I love talking to you, Matt. (laughs) But, you know, it is really... That is why I'm here, because this really, really matters. And I look around and I don't see anybody else trying to do this at the moment, is to be the country that I believe that we can be. And we can. We definitely can. I know that we can. Um, We've got to believe in it and then we've got to go out and we've got to fight for it and we've got to win.
0: So, um, just to end on a very, very few quick five questions I forgot to ask you earlier. Because you're from Manchester, um, multiple choice, United or City?
2: Wigan Athletic. Um, and actually, Wigan Warriors, it didn't escape me or the guy from Warrington at the back witches. there that you were having a pop at Rugby League earlier. Come on. I'm from I know Hey! Oh, hey. God, right, all
0: right, all right, here we go. Um, it was just a joke. You're not
2: getting out of it, <laughs> no, are
0: you? I don't think so, no. Um, Oasis or the Stone Roses?
2: This is very weird. Um, do you know that I like Britney Spears? This is like... <laughs> I just said the nation needs to pull together, but I feel for a culture war right now. <laughs>
0: no, no, it's, it's Manchester culture war. Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. Given the choice between Oasis and the Stone, Little Mix. Okay, Black Magic's a banger. I'll give you that. Uh, um, uh, okay, and more importantly, two Manchester political titans: Rebecca Long Bailey or Lisa Nandy.
2: Well, she's from Salford technically.
0: Which is a city.
2: Which is a place in its own right. Yeah. So we could be the bridge. We could be that red bridge, Rebecca Long Bailey. Serving in a Lisa the government. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay.
0: We'll see what happens. Um,
2: Come on, it's a contest. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to go out to win it. Of course
0: you have, yeah. Um, firstly, thank you very much, Lisa, and we shall thank you properly in a second. I can announce that next month's guest, and I've waited to the very end, i am so tempted to say it during the interview, is Rebecca Longbay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I really I really thought you were going to say Richard Burgundy. <laughs>
0: If he wants to come along and do five minutes at the start. Okay. I mean,
2: I think he at least gets a right of reply, doesn't he?
0: Oh, I would, I would love. Do you think he'd come and do it? I
1: think,
2: I think he probably would, actually. And I also think he'd probably do a better impression of you than you do of him. <laughs> but let's see.
0: Fair enough. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming down. I'll see you in February. Uh, This has been such a special night, but please, give a huge thank you to the amazing Lisa Dandy! Lisa Andy, there. Who knows what happens next in the Labour leadership contest? is fascinating to watch. And, of course, I'm delighted to be able to talk about it with another Labour leadership contender, Rebecca Long-Bailey, which I'm really excited about. And that means that in the last couple of years, I'll have interviewed all of the people standing for the Labour leadership or that were in the contest. So Jess Phillips, Emily Thornbury, Keir Starmer, Lisa Nandy, and then Rebecca Long-Bailey. So if you are a Labour member trying to make up your mind or you have an affiliate vote or whatever it is, you can listen to those and hopefully on some level they'll help. Um, Thanks again to everyone who comes to the shows. You can get tickets to the political party, but you do have to book quite a few months in advance. Um, so go to the other palace website, theotherpalace.co.uk. But as always, follow me on Twitter at matt ford and follow the other palace on Twitter because on the day, often people can't go and they will tweet me and um, with returns. And for instance, on the Lisa and Andy night, someone tweeted me in and said uh, they couldn't make it, and someone was two people were then able to go uh, as a result. So there's always a chance of getting last minute tickets. Um, as always, this is a pleasure to make. Thank you so much for listening to it. Do tell your friends and family. Share it on your social media. And if you can, and I know it's just a nightmare asking, but if you can use, if you can, use, if you can leave a, an iTunes review, it just, it really helps. So thank you very much. I'll see you next week.